Welcome to BDO Talks ERISA, a monthly podcast from BDO's ERISA Center of Excellence. Each month, we will be talking best practices around all things ERISA, how to avoid common compliance issues, how to navigate the tricky ins and outs of ERISA's fiduciary provisions, and discussing our own experiences working for BDO's ERISA Services Group and the insights we share through the ERISA Center of Excellence. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Welcome to another podcast for BDO Talks ERISA. I'm Beth Garner, National Practice Leader for our Employee Benefit Plan Group and a partner here at BDO. We're excited to, of course, have you join us today. This podcast is an extension of the services that we offer through our BDO's ERISA Center of Excellence. We developed the podcast to expand on topics and issues that we bring to you through our social media postings on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and of course, our quarterly ERISA Roundup. You know, as we've previously explained, the goal of our Center of Excellence is to truly help any plan sponsor and anyone charged with governance of their retirement plan with up-to-date information on what's going on in the industry. We know as professionals, you wear many hats within your organization, and our Center of Excellence can be a place to quickly get up-to-date information to help you with your responsibilities. Joining me on my podcast today is my absolutely fabulous and funny co-host, Joanne Zutka. Woo! Thank you very much, Beth. I hope I live up to that uh, that hype today. <laughs> We'll see. So if, any, so if any of you have listened to our podcast, then you know we normally have an outside guest. But you know what? We decided today it's just going to be us. And if you listen to us, then you know that we like to ask something personable, you know, about our guest. And so we don't want to let the tradition go since we've done it on every podcast. So I'm going to ask Joe uh, a question. And since we're, it's not, it, it's getting into, uh, fall weather, I figured I was going to ask you, what's your favorite thing about the fall? I don't have one thing in particular. I have two, but they go hand in hand. I love to see the fall foliage, the changing of the leaves while having a hot cup of apple cider. Dang, I totally missed that answer. In my mind, when I was like, I'm going to ask her something personal, she is going to say football. Go Eagles. I was going to say that. So that's like NFL. I'm talking about college. All right. So enough about all that. So right now, all of us in this fabulous ERISA profession, you know, we're arms deep in, in uh, work and, and trying to um, get things done. And, you know, we're taking a breather today to sit down and talk about a top 10 list. You know, like David Letterman. Okay, it's technical, so it's you know not going to be as funny as him, but it will give plan sponsors some great information. Yes. All right. I think the top 10 list is perfect, right? It's, it's the fall. Hopefully, we have all filed by October 15th. We're taking the break, and who doesn't like to celebrate with a top 10 list? So um, the top 10 list came from the GAO report that came out this past May. And it's important to note that in Appendix 3, they do list the top 10 ERISA violations identified in investigations. Exciting stuff, Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, the EBSA, got to get that right, regional offices 
they conduct investigations to detect violations. So these 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 professionals identified 4,273 violations in the 1,411 investigations closed in fiscal year 2020. I think this this, as Joe calls them, fun fact that it is interesting to me and great for plans and participants. The EBSA recovered over $3.1 billion in direct payments to plans and participants. I, I, that, that, okay, that's great for them, but you know what? We need to shore up what we're doing as plan fiduciaries. So, you know, the 10 most frequent violation categories account for almost 97% what? Yes, ninety-seven percent of all violations. Dang. Okay. All right. So this is this top ten list is going to be fascinating. If that's ninety-seven percent of all violations, um, then you know, hopefully, we can all walk away um, with a better better understanding of the most common plan failures that are found during an, an investigation for the plan sponsors, those charged with governance. Um, yeah. Where, where the where the rubber meets the road. So, mm. you know, let's get started on this top 10. All right, so here we go. 10, failure to establish a trust, 55 cases. Okay, Beth, the code is clear, very clear on this. All assets of an employee benefit plan must be held in a trust by one or more trustees who are to be named in the plan document. Yep, yep, pretty simple. You know, 55 cases, so we won't go deep into that subject. So we're going to go on to number nine. Reporting violation annual reports, 87 cases. So here, the plan administrator of an employee benefit plan must file an annual report which includes certain financial statements and an opinion from an independent qualified accountant. Okay, so let's take a step back first and maybe say who needs to file kind of yeah. an annual yeah. report. Um, plans with over 100 participants at the beginning of the plan year need to have an audit for that plan year. So taking a step back, if you're a calendar year-end plan and you have more than 100 participants on January 1st, then you're gonna need an audit. Um, we often hear late in the year that um, plans just realize that they need an audit, that they've crossed over that threshold. Um, it is important to note that there is an 80-120 rule that some plans can rely on. Um, however, the violations here are plans that did not properly get their audits done by an independent qualified accountant. So the DOL also has given guidance to plan sponsors regarding a qualified auditor. Um, as we know, price is one thing, but being qualified to do this specialized work is another. So plan sponsors should assess the qualifications of their auditors. And I know that we're over here, you know, giving a plug for auditors, but at the end of the day, the, the auditor does need to be qualified and it, this is a specialized industry. So, you know, I could see where that could, you know, get into now. There's only 87 cases. So most most plans are rectifying that that situation when they don't get their you know annual report in on time. So let's go on to number eight, bonding. Okay, okay we jump 
in the next from like nine to eight because it's like 87 cases. This is 169 cases. It, it's building because we started out at 55 cases. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, of course, we know every plan fiduciary and every person who handles funds or properties of a plan um, should be bonded unless otherwise exempt. Um, all plans have to have an ERISA fidelity bond. Um, this is an insurance protects the plan against losses caused by acts of fraud or dishonesty. And it's important to note that the plan is named as an insured party on the bond. Yeah, that's key. You know, plan sponsors also need to know that fiduciary liability insurance is not the same thing. We find no, it this, is not. Yes, we find this a lot in files where that, you know, they've got fiduciary liability insurance, but it, it, it has to be a fidelity bond. Yeah. So a couple more things. Uh, very important to know that on the 5,500, you do have to put what your bond amount is. So yeah. it's important mm -hmm. to know that. Um, but then a lot of times we get questions on, well, how much of a bond do I need? So like it's, it's insurance. What, what amount do I need? Um, or the coverage, I should say. Um, each person must be bonded an amount equal to at least 10% of the amounts of funds he or she is handling in the previous year. Um, now, granted, when we're talking about bonds, we're talking about coverage and, you know, we're not talking about carriers and who should be named on it. This is all general guidance on these rules. Um, you should reach out to your ERISA experts for specific advice on your retirement plans. So, um, Beth, I'm curious. We've seen the number go up. What is uh, number seven and how many cases do we have? Well, not crazy, crazy jump, but we do get into the 200s. We've got 209 cases at number seven, and it is duty of disclosure. And that is plan descriptions and plan summary descriptions. Okay. So we are going, we're moving up higher. These documents are what we would call like um, the summary plan description. This is what we would call the plain English version of the plan document. Plan document is very uh, riddled with legal jargon, as I like to say. And the, yes, summary the, plan, yes. Yes. the summary plan description puts it in like basic plain English so that you could understand it. Um, the end of the, the end objective is of course that the average plan participant has been able to understand the rights under their plan and that the information between the plan document, all the legal terms, matches what's in the sum in the plan summary description, which gets sent out to your participants. Yeah. I mean, we know from auditing these plans that, you know, reading that plan document, it gets it gets complicated. You know, we have some plans that have many, many pages and then incorporate union contracts into that, which could be, you know. 50 to 75 union, different union contracts, which have different eligibility and contribution provisions. So definitely um, helpful to have this for your plan participants where it rolls out that plain Jane English, as I call it. So, you know, with that, let's roll on to number six, improper benefit to employer. And that goes to 256 cases. Ooh, all right. So. Improper benefit to an employer can mean a lot of things. Um, this is one of the ones where I'm going to actually tell you what it means, and then I think we're going to have to kind of break it down into like plain language. Yeah, um, I think that's a great idea. So the specific rule is the assets of a plan shall not ensure to the benefit, basically an improper benefit um, for the employer 
but shall be held for the exclusive purpose of providing benefits to the participants and beneficiaries of the plan. So that was a mouthful. Yes. So basically think about contributions, you know, employee and employer contributions. So for employee contributions, we all know that employers are required to remit those contributions as soon as administratively feasible. You know, the employer cannot use those contributions to their benefit. Then on the flip side, you know, for employer contributions that have a vesting schedule, you know, if anybody forfeits those contributions because they're not 100% vested, you know, those don't return to the employer, but those stay in the plan. So, you know, this is what I would call a, almost a broad topic where even these contributions remittances could fall in some of the other uh, categories that we have. So, um, you know, we'll talk about late remittances again in a little bit. So with that, we're going to roll on to number five, failure to follow plan documents, 375 cases. So I'm going to tell you, and I'm giving a little, I'm going to throw out an English term, a little foreshadowing for everybody. Mm. I know, big word. As we move to the top five, there are larger and larger gaps in, in the number of cases for each violated provision. You know, I do have to say that, that as we go up this list, the violated provisions are more broader type terms where many operational issues could fall within the parameter of these provisions. So that's the reason for the, for the large jump. But you do need to pay attention to what these provisions are and know that you could be, you know, caught in this, I hate to say caught, you could violate one of these provisions and, you know, be part of that remittance of, of some, some issues into your plan. So, um, so we were talking about the failure to follow the plan document, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And so it's very important to know that the plan document is the legal document for the plan. Um, when we come in to audit a plan um, and somebody might have a question, eligibility, contributions, distributions, um, the first thing that we're going to say is, hey, what's in the plan document? Um, we don't say what's in the summary plan description. We go back to the plan document because that's the legal document. Yeah, we preach um, that. We do. If it's not in the plan document, it, it's like it didn't happen or it doesn't exist. Um, for like for us, you know, when all of our testing work papers, we tie back to what's in that plan uh, document to ensure that we're testing that the plan is in compliance with the plan documents, which is the plan provisions. Right. Very, very good points. And, you know, with the adoption of SAS 136, which is, you know, this new auditing standard with employee benefit plan audits, you know, there should be a clear reference over to the plan document as this you know, new accounting standard requires. You know, we did it, video did it obviously before, but now it has to be very obvious according to this auditing standard. And you know, if you're listening and you don't know about SAS 136, we did do a previous podcast on that topic. And it, you know, if you go back, that might help you understand that SAS 136. And so um I hate to say, Beth. It happened to be one that you weren't there. We actually did two podcasts on SAS 136. Well, dang. Thank mm -hmm. you for correcting me. The second one uh, 
deals with reportable findings, but yep, there are two on SAS 136. All of that said, we're down to the top four. So <laughs> number four is not going to be shocking if you're a plan sponsor and you've been running a plan for, for a lot of your career. Uh, prohibited transactions with a party in interest, 515 cases. I have to say, I actually thought this was going to be the number one um the number one violation. Oh wow! So, no, yeah. I'm holding out on that. Okay, you're not gonna be you're not gonna be shot by number one. Mm, okay, all right. So, kind of let me outline the rule, um, and then we'll break it down for general consumption. Okay, legal definition first. Plan fiduciary shall not cause the plan to engage in a transaction if that transaction constitutes, among other things, a direct or indirect transfer to or use by or for the benefit of a party in interest of any assets of the plant. Ooh, okay. I know. <laughs> so basically what that all says is no money shall be used that does not benefit a participant. Um, and when we hear prohibited transactions, the most common thing that pops into any auditor's mind um, is the late remittance that goes into the plan. So you have employees, they are making uh, or deferring contributions into the plan, into your 401k plan or your 403b plan. Um, and it comes time for payroll. And then the plan sponsor, or the company then has to remit the employee contributions, maybe loan repayments too, um, into the participant accounts that are being held at the trustee or the custodian, there's many service providers out there. Um, there, depending on the size of the company or the employer, small or large, there are different rules. I'm gonna give the definition for large employers. It is as soon as administratively feasible. Um, so what that means is, right, if, if you can do it in three days, then that's what you should do. It, it shouldn't take you 15 days, 20 days, seven days is as soon as administratively feasible. We could get into a whole conversation about do you have a documented um, remittance policy, but what we do find is um, that employers are not remitting that money into the participants' accounts as fast as they possibly can. Right. And, and late remittances, I think, from the beginning of time to the end of time, will be a hot topic. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, I am really surprised when plan sponsors don't know the rule. Um, so guess what, folks? We did the top three. Woohoo! Yes. So number three is fiduciary self-dealing. Plan fiduciaries shall not deal with the assets of the plan in their own interest or for their own account, among other things. That is 621 cases. Okay, so we're talking about self-dealing. So that could be like where the fiduciary pays themselves more than they should, or they sell assets from the trust to themselves, or potentially they borrow from the trust. Um, there was a case about this, right? Gratitude's paid to the trustees. Um, I believe it might be an older case from yeah. the 1990s. Um, but I it's where an administration firm reimbursed the plan trustees for expenses incurred by the trustees spouses when they're attending trustee meetings. Okay. So I can clearly say why this made it yeah. to court. 
the yeah. court ruled, the court ruled um, the payments constitute consideration received by the trustee in con- in connection with the plan assets and constitute self-dealing. Although plan assets were not directly used, the court noted that gratitude's influence the trustees in their dealing with the plan assets. For example, the trustees would be more likely to continue to retain the administration firm to perform services for the plan and to be compensated with plan assets. And I believe it is the Secretary of Labor versus Correll. Yep. So, you know, fiduciaries definitely need to make sure, you know, any transactions that are obvious, there's those obvious ones. And then some like this one where they think, oh, well, it doesn't hurt plan assets. It doesn't harm my participants. And so plan sponsors might think that that's a not so obvious type um, self-dealing. So, Missy, we are down to number two. Okay. Exclusive purpose. 875 cases. Are you kidding me? It's only two words. 875 cases? I know. Isn't that crazy? Okay. So, how do, what does this mean for plans? Um, exclusive purpose. So, It means that the plan fiduciary shall discharge their duty solely in the interest of the plan participants and beneficiaries and for the exclusive purpose of providing benefits to participants and their beneficiaries and defraying reasonable expenses of plan administration. 875 cases. Now, at the very end of that, you know, sentence, we, we said defraying reasonable expenses of plan administration. You know, we all know, we all see, it comes across our email, how many cases of litigation there's been, you know, when it comes to plan expenses. Um, we've witnessed so many changes in our industry as far as expenses. And, you know, from reporting it to the, you know, all of us getting the statements so that we know how, how much uh, expenses, the Schedule C for the Form PD 500 was changed. You know, um, I could see where, you know, there's 875 cases in, in this bucket. Oh, especially with expenses. I mean, we're telling our clients, um, we're communicating all the time with them with regards to plant expenses, right? Um, a lot of times they hear that expenses, oh, and they think, well, Okay, that means I've got to go with the cheapest. And that's not what we're saying, right? This goes back to the plan committee needs to document the reasoning as to all the decisions that they made and make sure that the plan is being run for the exclusive purpose of providing benefits to participants and their beneficiaries. Um, You know, it goes back to documentation, documentation, documentation. Yes, ma'am. Got to have those decisions documented. Mm -hmm. So I guess now really is the drum roll. We're down number one. And and this is not going to be a shocker. It's not? No, ma'am. Fiduciary imprudence. 977 cases. You talking about two words. Yeah, really. It's it's everyone's favorite F word, fiduciary. (laughs) But wait, 977 cases and they looked at 1,411. Yes, ma'am. That'll tell you. Okay. All right. Two words, broad consequences. Um, 
plan fiduciaries shall discharge their duly their duties solely in the interest of plan participants and beneficiaries with the care, skill, prudence, and diligence. Yeah, I mean, this category is way broad. You know, if you look up the rules and just some simple guidelines regarding fiduciary duties, so, you know, the the topics that pop up are, you know, like selecting plan service providers along with monitoring those service providers, selecting plan investment options, monitoring those as well, interpreting plan provisions. And I mean, that, that's the small, small itty bitty list. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a, quite a bit of training and discussion regarding fiduciary duties for plan sponsors. And it it starts right off the beginning, right, where. What does that mean if I'm a fiduciary? Yeah. Um, what does that entail? Um, again, it's such a broad area. Um, I can see why this is the largest category of violations. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we and and we do have some great articles on the Arista Center of Excellence. So if you are a fiduciary, I mean, named or functional, definitely look out for uh, those articles. You know, Joe, we could sit here and discuss these violations and plan sponsor duties for hours, but, you know, time is ticking down and we've got to get back to work and looking at financial statements. Now, listeners, if you want to hear a topic or send in any kind of questions to us, you can send those to BDO Talks Arissa at BDO.com. And I'm going to say it again, BDO Talks Arissa at BDO.com. Fantastic. We look forward to hearing from individuals. Um, I also just want to point out that our BDO ERISA Center of Excellence on BDO.com touches on all topics, retirement, and other HR trends to keep plan sponsors and HR professionals up to date. So please feel free to check it out. Thanks, Joanne, for um, another fabulous uh, time of hanging out. I always love hanging out with you. I also agree, Beth. I enjoy our time together. Until next time. Thank you for listening to BDO Talks Arissa. Past episodes are available at bdo.com slash BDO Talks Arissa, or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also send us feedback, questions, or ideas you have for future topics at BDO Talks Arissa at bdo.com. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on BDO's ERISA Center of Excellence and the services we provide, visit bdo.com slash ERISA.